Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Uh, today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 3, 1 Samuel chapter 3, and we're going to talk about Samuel. Uh, in my Bible, that is page 309. We're going to bring the passage up here, but the title of this morning's message is, Can You Hear God Calling You? The psalmist wrote that the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and those who hope in a steadfast love. Do you realize that our primary calling, our primary goal in life is to bring pleasure to God. That goes totally in contradiction to the way of the world is that we exist in this world that this world and other people in this world would in fact bring pleasure to us. God turns that whole philosophy upside down and the whole focus of Christianity is that we exist, we thrive, we draw breath in this world, that ultimately when it's all said and done that we make God smile, that we actually bring pleasure to God. And we're going to talk about a young man in the Old Testament, Samuel, who did just that. He brought pleasure to God. In fact, it says, it was written about Samuel, that he grew up, God was with him, and Samuel's prophetic record was flawless. Everyone in Israel recognized that Samuel was the real thing, the real deal, a true prophet of God. Why? It's simple. Samuel listened. Samuel had a bent. Samuel had a disposition before God where he listened. I'm going to confess that it's hard to listen to God in today's day and age because everywhere we go, there's a lot of rack and a lot of loud noise, uh, especially in my situation since COVID. I'm working at home. I have a uh, wonderful wife, I have four children, and I have two dogs. And quite honestly, when I'm in the middle of a group presentation, and I hear the dogs barking, and I hear the, 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 the boys might be fighting over the video games, I kind of get a little upset, and I'm going, I'm trying to convey this message to these clients, to these participants, because this is very important information that if they act upon it, it could have a radical impact on their retirement down the road. And so sometimes I get a little bit of bent out of shape when I'm sitting up in that home office and I just got a lot of chatter and a lot of noise. I don't know about you, but since the election, I can't even bother with the news. Every time you turn on the news, you got all the paid talking heads, both sides of the fence, just rattling their traps, making big money, pumping out the books, but it's just noise. It's just chatter. It's chatter. It's noise. It's racket. Makes no sense. Quite honestly, kind of gets me a little discouraged and maybe even depressed at times. And then, you know, you have those friends that you go and you meet out uh, at a coffee shop and you sit down and you spend some time with them and, and you love them and you care about them and you're really interested in what they had to say, but this particular conversation is just a lot of chatter, a lot of noise, a lot of racket, okay? And I know that I'm guilty of that. But I want to convey to you this truth to you this morning is that God 
wants to speak to you. We sang about the song where God has a voice. We read a passage of scripture that God has a voice, that he's speaking, that his eyes are running to and fro, and he's always looking for people that he can speak to. He's always looking for people that are engaged, that have both ears in tune, and they're willing to carve out some time and push the chatter away just for a moment that their ears and their heart is inclined to God, and he speaks to him. Or to her. And that's precisely what happened in Samuel's life. Let's just go ahead and read this passage of Scripture. I'm going to read uh, the first ten verses. And we have this on uh, 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 the uh, large screen TV. Is that what you call it? Large screen TV. The boy Samuel was, go ahead and chuckle. The boy Samuel was serving God under Eli's direction. This was at a time when the revelation of God was rarely heard or seen. One night, Eli was sound asleep. His eyesight was very bad. He could hardly see. It was, a, it was well before dawn. The sanctuary lamp was still burning. Samuel was still in bed in the temple of God where the chest of God rested. Then God called out, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, yes, I'm here. And then he ran to Eli, the priest, saying, I heard you call. Here I am. Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And so he did. God called again, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel shot back up. He went to Eli. I heard you call. Here I am. Again, Eli said, son, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. This all happened before Samuel knew God for himself. It was before the revelation of God had been given to him personally. Verse 8 and 9, God called again Samuel. The third time, yet again, Samuel got up and went to Eli. Yes, I heard you call me. Here I am. That's when it dawned on Eli that God was calling the boy. So Eli directed Samuel, go back and lie down. And if the voice calls again, say, speak, God. I am your servant. I'm ready to listen. Samuel returned to his bed. Then God came and stood before him exactly as before and calling out, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, speak. I'm your servant, ready to listen. Then God called out. Then called, God called again. God called again. God came and stood, calling out, God said to Samuel. On three different occasions, God crept up on Samuel while he was sleeping and whispered, Samuel, Samuel. Now, the Bible makes Eli out to be a much better person than myself because I have two teenage boys that like the game on into the early wee hours of the morning. And sometimes my wife and I, we go to bed, and we've got everybody tucked in, and Katie's tucked in, and uh, Zach is tucked in. Uh, one dog snores, one dog purrs. We're settled in as the wee hours of the night. And my son comes in, and, Dad, just want to tell you I love you. It's 1.30 in the morning, son. I've been in bed since 10.30. You can come at 10.30 and say, listen, I love you then, but... 
I'm not like Eli because I got Aaron coming in, and then 10, 15 minutes later, I got Benny coming in, and maybe they stir up Zach, and Zach comes in, and maybe uh, Katie gets awakened, and Katie comes in, and over and over and over again, hey, Dad, Mom, we love you. Dad, Mom, we... It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But at 1 or 2 in the morning, it is annoying. I appreciate the love on the first round. I don't need round two, three, and four of my children demonstrating their love or confessing their love for me at 12.30 or 1 or 1.30 or 2 in the morning. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm annoyed. I ripped the covers off. What the blank are you doing in here? Yes. Eli is much better than I am. I get disturbed, I get awakened, I get frustrated, I get impatient, I go to the bathroom, I go back in bed, I got to shove the dog aside because he gets into my warm spot, so I'm pushing him aside, he looks at me, gives me a dirty look at three in the morning, I climb back into bed, only to start the routine all over again. Samuel, Samuel. A couple of takeaways this morning as we think about Samuel's encounter with God or God speaking to Samuel. And first of all, God is driven by love. God chooses us. Man, if you don't get this, there's no point of going any further. Okay? And this is something that I'm sharing that I wrestle with within my own heart. God moves in our lives on a basis of love. God provokes us. God speaks to us. His only motivation is ever love. Now, my idea and my concept of love is tainted because I've had relationships with people that have said, listen, I love you, I care about you, but it fell apart. I love you and I care about you and I make a promise and they can't deliver on the promise. My life is riddled with relationships of people that said, I love you and I love you back and it fell apart. And I'm tainted when it comes to this whole idea of love because I always think that when somebody comes into my life, my first impression is, is where's the hook? What are you trying to get out of me? What do you want from me? What do you want me to deliver? What do you want me to promise? What do you want me to give? And that's the way the world operates. It's a give and take. If you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. That's not how God operates in our lives. And we've got to get an understanding that God is always moved by love, that God embodies love, that his temperament is not like mine at 2 in the morning. His temperament of one is unconditional love and grace and mercy. We have to understand this, that God is totally embodies love to the point that when he moved in Jesus' life, that Jesus laid down his life out of love. I struggle with this whole concept of God moving in my life on a basis or a foundation of love. I struggle with that. As soon as I open up the Bible and I read something about the Father, the Lord's Prayer, our Father, there's times when I just shut down. I can't engage in that. I don't trust that. I don't want to have a relationship with that. I completely shut down and I push God aside and I'm not ready to hear him say, David, David. 
There's a barrier. There's an obstacle. There's feelings. There's those emotions. There's a thought. There's a history there. There's a repetitive, uh, uh, ongoing cycle of self-talk that says, I don't love you. You're not worthy. I can't trust you. I don't want to be with you. So many other things in my life are more important to you. And when I read the Bible and I come to this word, God the Father, I tend to shut down and get silent and withdraw and put the barrier and put the guards up. And I want to tell you this morning, that is not God the Father in heaven. God is moved by love. He expresses nothing but love. He asserts love. He conveys love. He declares love. He discloses himself as love. Everything about this world and the people in your lives is a hug from God that says, I love you. I care about you. I want to have a relationship with you. Let's go back to the text and think about Samuel for a moment. We know the story. It was a man by the name of Elkanah, and he married Hannah, and he was in love with Hannah. Deeply, deeply in love with Hannah. But the problem was, is Hannah was barren and couldn't bear children. And so Elkanah, like most wise men, went out and got another wife. Paniah. Paniah could have children. She was fruitful. And Elkanah, three times a year, would take this trip from Ramah to Shiloh, his hometown. It was about 14 miles, took about six to eight hours on a day trip. But he would load up the wagon, he would load up the donkey, he would get his two wives, one with all the children and one that was barren. He'd gather them together, and they'd take the six-hour journey from Ramah to Shiloh, which means peace. And I must uh, confess that I don't think that that was a peaceful journey. First of all, uh, uh, taking uh, one trip to Florida with four kids and a wife can be pretty, uh, uh, what's the word there that I'm trying to think of, a, a politically correct word, Curtis. Uh, what's that? Make you anxious. Exactly. That's the, thank you, Curtis. Uh, sometimes you get anxious when you have a long trip planned out with the entire family, Right? This family was just like our family and every other family. They had issues in their family, and there was competition, stiff competition. There was jealousy. There was criticism. There was judgmentalism going back and forth. But year in and year out, Elkanah loaded up his family, took the 14-mile trip to Ramah or to Shiloh, this place called Peace, and they'd offer up the sacrifices and he was proud of his family and proud of his children, but there was always Hannah standing off in the dark, and she was missing something in her life. She had a deep longing in her life. She had a deep sense of loneliness in her life. She had a deep sense of inadequacy in her life. She had a deep sense of emptiness in her life. She went up to the temple and everybody else had their children running around and playing games, whether that was uh, 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 darts or, or soccer, whatever it was. They were out there in the grass and they're playing and then there's Hannah off to the side, bitter, 
and filled with shame and guilt and a misunderstanding of who she was as a woman. And she went to the priest and she went to the tabernacle and she crawled up and she cried and she wept and her soul was downcast to the point of despair. And then she met Eli and Eli thought that she was drunk and he prophesied over her. And then she went back home and she had a baby boy by the name of Samuel. God chose Hannah out of love. He moved into Hannah's life out of love. In our small group, a couple shared where they had a similar uh, obstacle, a similar barrier, and God, out of his great mercy and out of his great love, moved in this couple's lives. I want to encourage you this morning, if you have a barren place in your life, if you have a place that is empty, if you have a place it is a, a deep sense of longing, a deep sense of pain, a deep sense of loss, a, 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 a need, a want, a desire. Now, please don't misunderstand me. God is not that, uh, uh, he's not the, uh, the vending machine where you put your prayer in and you hit D7 and out comes six children. It's not going to work that way. Uh, it didn't work for me. Once we figured out how that happened, we stopped at four. But nonetheless, that was for you, Tim. Nonetheless, God moved in Hannah's life out of love. He saw her pain. He saw her suffering. He saw her loss. He saw her barrenness. He saw her emptiness. And he was moved with compassion, with empathy. Not to kind of say, well, that's a sad story, and I'm going to keep you at arm's length because it's sad, and it's messy, and it's ugly, and I don't want to get involved in that because I don't really love you to that extent. I don't really care about this situation. I'm going to keep you at arm's length. Not God. He gets involved in the mess. He gets involved in the trash. He gets involved in the dirt. He gets involved in the loss and the sorrow and the bitterness and the anger. And out of love, he moves into individuals' lives. And he'll move into your life. That's the message this morning, is that God has a voice and God speaks. And he's not a lecturer. He's not a tutor. He's not a professor. He doesn't want to teach you things about God. He doesn't want to fill your head with facts. He doesn't want to fill your head with figures. He doesn't want to fill your head with formulas. God wants to move in your life. God wants you to experience him in a very real and lifelike relationship that's founded upon nothing other but unconditional, unmerited love. And if you don't get that, when God speaks to you, when he calls your name, you're going to be resistant and you're going to say, no, not now. Or God, I'm too busy. I'm trying to do this. I want to accomplish this. I want to go here. I want this in my life. And there's so many people in our world today where God is trying to woo them and call them and speak their name and draw them into a relationship with him. But the chatter and the noise is so great that it drowns out the very voice of God. I have something to share with you this morning. If you're looking for God to shout at you and yell at you, you're going to miss it. Sometimes he does shout. 
There's been times in my life when I felt that he grabbed the back of my collar and I was like seven or eight years old again and he walked me over to the corner and he says, listen, we have to have a talk about this. I've tried to get your attention several times here, but you're just not listening, son. We have to have a sit down and talk about this. It's discipline time. Those are not fun times with God, but for the most part, it is a quiet, still voice. It's Marvin. Marvin, it's Alex, Alex, it's Maria, Maria, it's Mike, Mike, hey, I'm over here, I'm over here, bud, Bud, I'm over here. Tommy, Tommy, he may not call you Tom, he may call you Tommy. Listen, I, I, I uh, served on the servant team for four years. We have a, a great group of elders here. I've served in a couple of churches. That's not always the case. There's churches across our country that are filled with what I would call rascals. They have their own agenda. Not a whole lot of time and place for God's agenda. They're just flat out rascals. I enjoyed serving on that team. Great group of elders. Bud. Bud's a wise man. So if God ever speaks to Bud or when God speaks to Bud, sometimes he might refer to him as Bud wiser. <laughs> now, he's not advocating going down to the local package store, but sometimes he throws a name on the back of the name. You know that when we die and we go to heaven, uh, God is going to give us a stone with our new name on it to go with our new body and to go with our new reputation and to go with our new uh, focus, to go with our new life, eternal life, abundant life, a happy life, a fulfilling life, a life of worship and a life of service. But God is going to speak to us in the small, still, quiet moments of life and he's going to call our name and it's an invitation to have a very real relationship with a living and a loving God. Listen. This is something I struggle with in experiencing God with Henry Blackaby. Never, 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 nunca, nachni, jubu, never, 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 never will God offer up his second best to you. He'll never come to you with an inferior plan. He'll never come to you and say, you're a screw up. You messed it up. You had one chance. You had one plan. You screwed it up. Never, never, never under any circumstance will God ever approach you and give you something second best, second rate, something inferior. Listen, I struggle with that. I look at my life and I look at my past and I, knew who, I know who I am and I know what I've done and I still wrestle with that whole idea that I'm a new creation in Christ. I wrestle with this. Sometimes I look at my life, not my wife and my children, that's the safe zone, but everything else I ask myself, God, is there something better? 
Sometimes I feel like the stepchild. Sometimes I feel like I'm lined up. And there's the family tree. And God's saying, yes, 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 yes. Later, yes, yes. Let me come back. If something fails, I'll bring you in for plan B. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel that God approaches me with plan B. Something inferior. And maybe that's pride in my own life. Maybe there's some hidden goals and hidden objectives. Maybe there's something in my life that competes and wrestles with God. Maybe there's an issue that I'm not wholly surrendered to God. Maybe I have my own will and I have my own goals and I have my own plan. And like Jacob, I'm wrestling with God. Maybe that's the case. But I have to allow God's Spirit to speak to my heart and soul and say, I have nothing but my absolute best for your life. And that's a process day in, day out that I wrestle with God. Is this your best? Is this your best? Did I miss it? You know, we, uh, Nicole and I, before we had children, we used to love to, we lived down in the south, and we'd hike and we'd fly fish. And uh, down in the south, North Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, Smokies, beautiful area. But they have a beautiful, gorgeous they have beautiful waterfalls, and one particular place is uh, Tallulah Falls, uh, the Tallulah Canyons. And uh, I don't know the exact date, but I remember standing there on the side and looking down at the waterfall and looking down at the valley or looking down into the canyon, and people were fishing and people were whitewater rafting. And there was a little plaque there about the gentleman's name, and I wish I could remember it, but he had done a high wire act and he had had that long pole and they stretched this cable across the canyon. And it was a large canyon. The guy uh, must have been crazy or on drugs or something like that. I would never do it in my right mind. But they stretched the cable out, and he had the pole, and he took one step after another, after a step, after a step. I can't even walk on the carpet. One after another, one after He went across the canyon. I thought to myself, I could never make it across a canyon. I don't have that kind of confidence. I don't have that kind of skill. I'm a ground man, if you can't tell. Three rungs up on the ladder, I start to shake and get nervous, a little bit anxious about that. But nonetheless, I thought about myself. If I had made that attempt, without a doubt, I would make one or two wrong moves and my shoe would slip and I'd go down and I'd be dangling there with the safety harness. To me, that would not be success, having two pros come out. I'm wailing, screaming, crying, clutching on them, right, white-knuckled, and they pull me up and somehow they try to slide me back to uh, the, the, the side of the, the, the bank where I feel safe once again. Here's the point. Sometimes I think that my walk with God is a high-wire act. There's times when I look at where I am at and where God is and where God wants me to be, and I see the canyon, and I know that if I make one wrong move, one slip, that I'm going to fall. And I've done this before I was a Christian, and I've done this afterwards, since 1994. There's been times when I've made the wrong move. I've made the wrong decision. I went in an entirely different direction. And I slipped, and I fell, and I crashed at the bottom of that canyon that we call failure. It's an ugly place to be. And I'm reminded 
that we're not one step away. We're not one slip up where God writes us off. That's not who he is. That's not who he is. Certainly he lets us make the misstep. Certainly he lets us fall. It's a teachable. It's a moment to learn about who he is and who we are and what a relationship looks like. It's an opportunity to learn about grace and forgiveness and mercy and restoration and reconciliation and regeneration. It's a tremendous opportunity. And if you're here this morning and you think that if you're one step away, one slip up, one poor decision... He's not going to dig your file out of the file cabinet and open it up and get the red marker and put an X on it and say, it's finished. It's done. i got to move on to the next Christian. It just doesn't happen. And so if you're here this morning and you feel that you're laying there in a canyon, maybe of your own making or that of another, God's going to speak to you. In the same way as if you had not made the misstep and fell into the canyon, God is going to move in your life and he's going to call you by name. Don't be afraid of that call. Don't be afraid of the mercy. Don't be afraid of the grace. Know that God can use anyone at any point in time, in any location, out of his great love, he can move into your life. Now, I know we covered a lot of ground there in the first principle, but let's move on to the second, which is a good start is no guarantee of a good finish. Now, let's go back to the text and think about this for a moment. The boy Samuel was serving under Eli's direction. This was at a time when the revelation of God was rarely heard or seen, and one night Eli was sound asleep. Poor eyesight, he could barely see. It was well before the dawn of the sanctuary. Dawn, the sanctuary. The lamp was still burning. Samuel was still in bed in the temple of God, bed in the temple of God, where the chest of God, the Ark of the Covenant, rested. Let's paint the picture here for a moment. This is in the wee hours of the morning. It's dark. It's quiet. It's silent. They can hear the mice scurry around. If one of the priests is hungry and they want to get up and go to the refrigerator, make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, or get into uh, the chips and dip, any scurrying, any movement whatsoever, somebody is going to hear it and they're going to be awakened. It's a very dark place. We know that. You know, two, three in the morning, uh, no moon out, no stars. You look out, it's very dark. It's very eerie, okay? And we got the setting here that it's a very dark place. We know that they're laying in the courts. We know that by the map or what the Bible tells us, it's that there's this place in the temple called the most holy place. It's a place only reserved for the presence of God and the high priest one day a year. That's it. It's the most holy place. In fact, it's so holy that one time in a year that the high priest goes in, he puts the ephod on, he puts the robe on, they tie a rope around his ankle. It has bells on the rope so that when the priest enters into the most holy place, he's not sure that he's going to come out. 
if he hasn't rightly atoned for his own sins and the sins of Israel, if he goes on in, in unclean, if there's any blemish, if there's any sin that's not reconciled with God, if he goes in, there was such a tremendous fear and awe and respect for God that there was a potential that they would have to be dragged out. And so the priest would go in and minister before God in the most holy place, and he would rock and he would move so that all the other priests holding on the rope would hear him still moving and rocking because the bells were still ringing. Okay? The most holy place. Then there was the holy place, and this was an area where the sacred furniture, like the incense, the lampstand, things that the priest used in their worship, it was like a storage room, not so much, but it was called the holy place. And they stored this, uh, stored the instruments and the furniture there. And then outside of the holy place, the most holy place was the holy place. Then there was the courts. And it was a series of small rooms where the priest would lay down and sleep. And this is where we find Samuel. And this is where we find Eli. It's dark, just a couple yards away from the most holy place. It's quiet. It's dark. God speaks, Samuel hears, runs to Eli, the high priest, and Eli doesn't even know it's God speaking to Samuel. It's sad because we know that Eli was a very good priest. Eli was responsible for setting up all of the worship. He was responsible for the spiritual condition of Israel at large. We know that he was a very prominent man in the life of Israel. We know that he uh, served God well as a priest, but he had a problem. And anybody know what Eli's problem was? And this is a sermon for another day. But if you read the text, Eli didn't discipline his sons. And Eli was raising up his sons to be priests in the tabernacle, and they were involved in sexual immorality in the tabernacle. They were involved in extorting. They were involved in ripping people off, robbing people. The Bible describes them as corrupt, that they were contemptible, that they were worthless, they were vile, and in fact, their very existence was an expression of hate toward the God that had created them. And this was Eli's problem, is how while he was a good priest, his family fell apart because he did warn them, but he never stepped in, he never interceded, and he never brought good, firm, loving discipline into his children's lives. And it fell apart. And here you have young Samuel who is hearing the voice of God. It's spiritually dark. And you would think that if God spoke, that God would honor the chain of command. You would think that God would go and speak to Eli. You would think that God would respect Eli and pull Eli aside and say, Hey, listen, I want to speak to you about this young understudy by the name of Samuel. Anybody here uh, serve in the military? I know there's a couple of you here in the military. Can somebody briefly explain to us the chain of command in the military? I grew up as a military kid. I never saw a general sitting in my living room with my dad. Uh, giving him directions or instructions. Somebody briefly, and I mean briefly, give us some sense of the chain of command in the military. No takers on that? It's not good when the chain of... Go ahead. 
the message trickles down, right? Uh, the general speaks to the colonel, the colonel speaks to the lieutenant colonel, the, colonel, the lieutenant colonel speaks to the major, the major speaks to the captain, the captain speaks to the lieutenant, the lieutenant goes out and speaks to the enlisted, the NCOs. There's a chain of command. And God totally went across the chain of command, and he walked right by Eli, who was asleep, and he went to the young boy, 12 years of age, Samuel, and he said, Samuel, Samuel, it's time. It's your moment. It's your time. I know that Israel is dark. I know that Eli is on his way out. I know that Eli's sons are corrupt, but the time is now. I know that you're young. You're just 12 years of age. I know that your mother dropped you off at the tabernacle by the age of three. I know that you have served for about nine years. You've been busy. You've been faithful. You've been obedient, but you have been religious. And in God's divine providence, it was time for God to introduce himself, to reveal himself, so that he could draw Samuel into himself and have a very real and intimate and personal relationship. The time was now. Now, when we look at Blackaby on page, chapter, uh, page 39 as we move to the slide, this is something that just really struck out to me in our experiencing God. And I thought about this when you compare Eli and Eli's sons to Samuel. And when you think about Eli and you think about Eli's sons, they were very self-centered. It was all about them. They were seeking personal success. They were seeking accomplishments. Uh, they were longing to be accepted by the world. They were willing to make compromises to be accepted by the world. They chose to be driven by a selfish, ordinary lifestyle. And that was Eli and his two sons. But when you think about the makeup of, Sam, of Samuel, he put his confidence in God. He depended on, upon God. He denied himself. He sought to build up the kingdom of God over choosing to build his own kingdom. He sought God's perspective in every circumstance, and he sought a relationship with God, and he chose a life based on godly, holy living. I truly believe that we're in an age of revival, and I don't use that lightly. But when you survey the churches across America, and you think about the average nominal Christian today, and the lack of a thriving, ongoing relationship, and a lack of fruit in their lives, I think that we are on the verge of revival. Because at the end times, when God wants to call in the harvest, okay, he's got to mend the net, the church. There's too many holes. There's too many threads missing. The, 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 there, there, there's not the people in place to cast the net and to bring into the harvest. I mean, it's almost a monthly or annual, at least annually, we open up the newspaper and we read about some prolific author, preacher, pastor that has succumbed to immorality. It goes on and on and on and on. They are falling like dominoes. They are falling one after another, after another, after another. When we look at the music ministry as well, we see them choosing alternative lifestyles. We see them turning away from God. We see them leaving their spouse a bit 
threatening their kids. Across the board in Christianity, in the high-profile places, they're falling like dominoes. And i got to believe that God is behind that. His, his spirit is behind that because he is looking for people that don't want to be self-centered, but they want to be Christ-centered. He's looking for people that don't care about their role and seeking the reward of being successful in this world, but they're willing to die to self and take up the cross and to follow Jesus. i got to believe that there's a great awakening. There's a purification. There's a fresh sense of God's righteousness falling on the church today. And I got to believe that God is calling us into a God-centered life as opposed to this self-centered life. I like what uh, Jim Cimbala at the Brooklyn Tabernacle had to say. Uh, I had an opportunity to tell you a story here. Uh, I got saved at 90, 1994, and I went through personal revival. God put me, fortunately, God put me in the presence of a small group of men that were not like Eli. They were Christ-centered. They were on fire. They were serious. Everybody had bumped up against them. God's spirit came out, and there was just a sense of uh, uh, renovation, regeneration, justification, you name it, just a good, solid foundation with Jesus. It was founded upon love. And I had a friend, and, and out of that, I founded a ministry, and the ministry was for uh, men, and I would go into uh, prisons, and I would go out uh, wherever I could find them, on the streets, the corner, what have you. They'd come through the back door, the side door, the front door to church, and I'd sit down and I'd talk to them. I'd spend some time with them, and if I felt that they were truly being drawn by God, we would offer them a place to stay for six months to a year. And I founded that ministry, and we brought these guys in. Well, what I really appreciated is that I had a friend, and... I was able to hold his hand for a season, bring him to a certain point. He was from New York. He wanted to reconcile with his parents. He wanted to restore that relationship after about 15 to 20 years of drug use and abuse and, and what have you. And so we hopped in the car, and we were living down in West Palm Beach, Florida at the time. We drove up to New York, and uh, we got to Delaware where his family lived, and we got to the small Italian deli marketplace that they worked in, and he froze and he just couldn't do it. And I said, well, maybe it's another time. So we hopped in the car, and I said, hey, listen, uh, have you ever been to the Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City? And he said, no. I said, let's go there. So we went, and uh, at the time, they had six services on Sunday. I'm not talking about these six 45-minute-to-an-hour uh, in-and-outs. I'm talking about six two-hour service, services or plus. And when Jim Simbola got up to preach, it was six different messages. And uh, so we went to all six services on that Sunday. And so I went back down to Florida, and I sat with a couple of my pastors. I said, well, I don't know if it's a possibility, but we really, we really need to hear from this guy. And I'm, keep in mind, I'm not a guy that chases prophets. I'm not a guy that chases Christian fortune tellers. Okay? But this guy, there was something different. And as I got to study his, 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 his ministry and his choir, anybody hear the music from the Brooklyn Tabernacle? It is 
absolutely phenomenal, the music in the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Here's what many people don't know, that the choir is not filled with trained musicians. It's not filled with professionals. It's filled with former crack prostitutes. It's filled with former heroin addicts. It's filled with former supermodels that had eating disorders. You name it, it is filled with every individual that has a history and a backstory to it. And when they sing, it's just the amazing grace that God moved in their life and draw them and pulled them out of a life of ministry and destruction and hopelessness. And he brought them unto himself and he put them up in a trophy case that we call the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And they sing and they share their testimony. And it is absolutely moving. During uh, Prior to COVID, I had an account down in Brooklyn. So once a month, I was able to go down I stayed at the hotel just a block away, and I'd go in there, and, and once a month I'd go in during their prayer service, and sometimes it was Jim Cimbalo teaching, and other times it wasn't. But it's just absolutely refreshing. If you haven't ever gone to the Brooklyn Tabernacle, you owe yourself just one visit to go in there and experience the pre- I'm telling you, you come up, there's a line wrapped around two blocks to get in. I'm telling you, you step off the curb four lanes away, and it's like, you can just feel the presence of God in a place. It is just absolutely amazing. And the point that I'm getting to, and I probably lost the point, is that Jim Cimbala in his book, and I encourage everybody to read, it's a short read, it's a book entitled Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, and that's what he says. The first step in any spiritual awakening, awakening is demolition. That goes totally against the grain of the world. Because if you go down to the local bookstore and you walk the aisles, one of the largest sections in the bookstore is this self-help section, is it not? There's every self-help guru out there. I mean, this is the point where I think I might even be able to become a self-help guru put a book on the shelves for 1995. But the point is, is there's so many people that want to tell us how to be the best self And they have no idea. No clue. Because the truth of the matter is, is David Lemoyne cannot be my best self apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's where the whole philosophy falls, is we can't be our best self. Listen carefully. We come into Christianity and we start looking at things we want to change. How do I change this? How do I take this out and put this in? We spend time in church and we spend time with Christians and we say, wow, this person is a super Christian. This person's a super Christian. This person is a super... Can I tell you something? We can all be super Christians for about 30 minutes to an hour in church. I'm just going to throw that out there. Okay? I know some of you are looking at me and saying, man, he is a super Christian. I want to tell you, you got that right. I can be a super Christian for 30 minutes to an hour. Anybody can. But God's not looking for super Christians. God's looking for people that are broken. God is looking for people that have hit rock bottom. God is looking for people that are at the end of their rope. 
God is looking for people that say, I can't take one step. God is looking for people that say, I can't even get out of the bed this morning. God is looking for people that are filled with pain, filled with hurt, filled with sorrow, filled with suffering, filled with loss, filled with depression, filled with discouragement. That's who God is looking for. He is looking for the individual that is willing to be broken down and demolished. That's what he's looking for. That's who he's whispering to. That's who he is calling. He's looking for the person that is willing to be demolished. And I know that law in my own life. I wish I could do the things I want to do, but I continue to do the things that I don't want to do. I know that verse. I know the power of persuasion. I know how sinful and fallen my flesh is. I know how strong it is. I know the deep-seated desires to say no to God and to pursue what makes David happy, what makes David prosperous, what makes makes David accomplished, what makes David popular. I know the struggle and it's very real, but God is looking for people that will say no to self. He's looking for people just humble enough to say, I'm going to deny myself and take up his cross Daily. Listen to what Jim says. The first step in any spiritual awakening is demolition. We cannot make headway in seeking God without first tearing down the accumulated junk in our souls. Rationalizing has to cease. We have to start seeing the sinful debris we hadn't noticed before, which is what holds back the blessing of God. You know what he's telling us? That when we come to Jesus and he calls our name, sometimes he's standing there holding a shovel and a broom. Sometimes when I go to God, he says, listen, you got to dig the crap out of your life. you got to dig this out and you got to toss it into the heat pile. There's sometimes he comes into my life and he hands me a broom and a dustpan and he wants me to sweep up the debris, get it in a dustpan, toss it. You know, Unfortunately, sometimes I'm like my children. You know, if you have children and you ask them to do chores, uh, you got, uh, we, got a, we, got a, we, got a, uh, we got one on our family. I swear he's going to be a, a politician. He has an answer for everything. Uh, he's very witty. He's very intelligent. He's very funny. He's very persuasive. But he is also very good at getting around the chore. And sometimes when I look at him, I think of myself, I say, God, that's, that's, exactly, that's exactly how you are with God. He gives you the broom, and you are very good at somehow managing to put the broom in the corner and walk off and stay the same old David Lemoyne. Now, I know that we're getting close here, but that was actually the introduction on what I was supposed to share with you this morning, because we're going through Blackaby Experiencing God. And part one is that God speaks. So I'm going to take, because I think it's worthwhile, I'm not going to preach to, to you or, or teach. I just want to share my own personal experience because we're talking about how God speaks to us and what are the medians or mediums or how does he move in our lives. And we see that he moved in the life of Samuel and he spoke to Samuel and he awakened Samuel's soul and he entered his soul. And I want to share with you that... 
here in this passage of Scripture, it says that it dawned on Eli that God was calling a boy, so Eli directed Samuel, go back and lie down. If the voice calls again, say, speak, God, I'm your servant, ready to listen. Listen, God was going to move in Samuel's life, and God is going to move in your life, and he's going to move with revelation. He's going to reveal himself to you as he is, and when he reveals himself to you, he's going to open up an invitation to have a relationship with you, And out of that revelation and out of that relationship is going to come a revolution in your life and in the church at large here in this country. It's going to require some ears to hear and it's going to require eyes to see and a heart that has a a propensity to move and gravitate and to be where God is at work. And he wants to bring this revelation into our lives. And he wants to bring it first and foremost into our own lives on a very real and personal relationship. I like when I hear movie stars and musicians talk on behalf of God. Uh, Just this week, uh, past week, uh, uh, one famous individual said, yeah, the reason why Texas has this weather issue is because God doesn't like the the politicians in, in Texas, so this is the curse. Man, I jotted that down, man. That was like, that was like when Moses went to the top of Mount and, and God wrote, spoke to him the Ten Commandments and, and Moses carved out the Ten Commandments. When I heard her say that, I wrote it down. Didn't you, Curtis? Nope. Write it down now. Somebody famous, a politician, a movie star, a musician, they talked about God. They delivered God's word. You got to write that down, right? Absolutely not. Why? Because there's a lot of people that don't know God's voice in the world. And if you're one of those Christians that goes around and says, yeah, God spoke to me this morning. Go down. Go down. There, there's some of you in here, if you, if you go down to your job and say, yeah, you're sitting in a boardroom. I'm sat in, and everybody's talking and talking about the sports. And, and uh, uh, I want to pick on him because I love him and I got a lot of respect for him. And I don't think he's going to take this personally. But, you know, can you imagine Glenn down at the boardroom at Cigna and they're all talking about the sports and the weather and the Yankees and the Red Sox? He said, yeah, yeah, let me tell you what God told me this morning. Huh? I'll tell you where Glenn's going to be down at the unemployment line. Right? They're going to go, this guy is nuts. Call, uh, go down to the local clinic, have the psychologist sit down with you. You know, we're going to temporarily relieve you from your duties here and let you go over here and speak to God a little more. By the way, we're going to, you know, we'll work that family medical leave of absence and then we're going to replace you by the time you come back. But nonetheless, the world thinks we're crazy when we tell them that God spoke to us. Is it not? But here's what Jesus says. Or the Bible says, God offers a full report on the gifts of life and salvation that he is giving us. We don't have to rely on the world's guesses and opinions. We don't have to learn this by reading books or going to school. We learned it from God who taught us person to person. And how do we learn that? Because Jesus Christ offered up his life On the cross, he was perfect and pure in every way. And he took the cross and he took the blood and he put it up on the altar in heavens. He was the perfect, unblemished bull and lamb and goat and bird. And that blood poured out in the tabernacle of heaven. And God said, it is finished. My wrath has subdued. 
I am satisfied. The perfect and pure sacrifice for all of humanity. And Jesus told his disciples, I got to go away. And I'm going away because God's going to send you a friend. And the Bible calls that friend the Holy Spirit. Jesus talking. I'll talk to the Father. And he'll provide you another friend. And you will always have someone, not something, someone, a person. You will always have someone with you. This friend is the spirit of truth. This friend, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send on my request, will make everything plain to you. He will remind you of all things. Jesus says, I'm leaving you well and whole. This is my parting gift. This is my own experience. And in Blackaby's book, when you turn to the back, there's this page that talks about the names of God, the Father, the names of Jesus, the names of the Holy Spirit. And early on in my walk with Jesus, I opened up the Bible, just like many of you have, and I had the King James Version. Lord, help me. Nothing wrong with that. People lost their life over that. But the these and thous, for a guy that sat in the back of the class that had no understanding of geometry and algebra, opening up the Bible and beginning to read that, that I might as well have enrolled in trigonometry. Right? I might as well have been sitting in the cockpit of the space shuttle with no training whatsoever. And what popped out was, I'm going to send you a friend. I took about 10 minutes and I opened up a, a word study and I opened up the a word study and it said, friend, the paraclete, the counselor, the one who's called to come alongside you. And so I began opening up the written word of God and I'd sit down and I would just envision myself sitting here with the Bible and it says, listen, I need you to come alongside me. I need you to tutor me. I need you to teach me. I need you to be close to me. I need you to counsel me in the ways of God. And there was moments when I'd sit there and I'd know about the Bible and I had no clue. Green, green as a gourd, green, no understanding whatsoever. And it was like you could feel the presence of God, the Holy Spirit of God, just walk up on you and put his hand on your shoulder and lean in real close and say, This is what I want you to do to remember today. This is what I want you to think about today. This is what I want you to write down today. This is what I want you to journal. I didn't see it all. I could only see three feet in front of me. But I realized as I, as I, as I sat down with God's Bible and I asked the, the, the Holy Spirit to come alongside and to teach me and to help me and enable me to understand this, that I would jot down a few sentences or words. And sometimes it was pages and sometimes it was 30 pages. And I'd write it down and I'd go back and I'd look and I contract the faithfulness of God speaking and moving in my life. I didn't understand it in any particular day, but it's like, you know, when you sit down and you got those, uh, and I'm very elementary, when you sit down, you got the coloring book and you look at the picture. Now I look at the coloring book and I go, yeah, that's a rooster. You know, the connected dots. Now I look at that and I go, yeah, that's a rooster. Let me just trace that out. But man, when you're like five years of age and they put that connected dot in front of you, it's like that picture could be anything. I have no idea that it could be a skyscraper in New York, it could be a rooster, it could be Mike Yaka. I don't know. When you're five years of age, you don't know what you're about to put the crayon on the paper and come out with, right? And that's how I was early on in my walk with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit coming alongside 
the living word and the Holy Spirit coming together, and he'd put my hand and connect the dots. I don't know how God's going to speak to you, and I don't know the way that he approaches you. And I want to encourage you, if you've never heard God speak to you, he wants to speak to you. You just have to carve the time out. And be elementary. Just sit down and say, God, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't want to focus on all this. Oh, and a word of caution. Don't start with the book of Numbers or Leviticus. Those aren't necessarily exciting. Start with the book of John. And I want to encourage everybody, if you haven't read the Bible, or if the Bible is confusing... Start with the book of John. Go out and get a journal. You can get them 50 cents at Staples. Get a book and sit down, blank page, lay it out on the table and say, Jesus, I just want to hear from you today. I just want you to press a word, an image, a verse on my heart and soul, something for today. I'm going to tell you what he shared with me just recently. Some of you aren't going to like this. But I was sitting there and God said, As a water reflects the face of a man, so a heart reflects the man. As water reflects the face of a man, so water, so the heart reflects a man. And then he led me to a passage and said, uh, Salt and water, salt water and fresh water don't come from the same source. And he hit me on profanity. I said, listen, if you want to go any further with me, if you want to walk with me, if you want to be used to a greater extent, you're going to have to dial back the profanity. And, uh, you know, the old hit your thumb with the hammer... And, and, and I've been in some groups where it's acceptable and, 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 uh, and it's fun. But God just really hit me. He said, listen, there's just no place for it. And I'm not saying this to anybody else. This is my personal quiet time with God. He says, there's just no place for it in your life. And that's just my recent experience or encounter with God. He says, listen, I'm holy. I speak holy. I speak that which is right, true, and pure. And I want and need your speech to be right, true, and pure. So I know there's some of you that might be nosy and try to pull Aaron aside and say, hey, what kind of profanity does your dad say at the house? He's not going to tell you. I bribed him. <laughs> but nonetheless, that's just my relationship with God. That's just one part of it. But I want to encourage you to ask God's Spirit to move in your life, to bring a verse, to bring a principle out of Scripture that's going to have an immediate impact in your life, which will spill out and have an impact with your family and beyond.
Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.